appreciate the presence of everyone. We are delighted that you're here. And as always, I hope you have your Bible with you because we're going to be doing a Bible study. I want us to talk a little while about an unpleasant subject, and that is the subject of death. What we know about death. To a child, as they contemplate the subject of death, it's much of a mystery, and they have lots of questions about death. You perhaps remember when you were young and learning about death, or a loved one died, or you went to a funeral, and you had lots of questions. You didn't know what death was all about. But as we get older, we learn more about death, particularly from the text, and yet there's still much that is unknown to us about death. And so we wonder about some things. We wonder, what's it like to die? We've never experienced that, so we don't know. But what's it like to die? And furthermore, we may wonder, what do we do and what do we know after we die? Uh, once I reach the point of death and I have passed, do I know anything? And what do I know? Will we recognize one another beyond death? When I enter into the realm beyond death, am I going to recognize others that are dead? And will I know them and would they know me? Those are questions we ponder. What happens to the soul immediately upon death? What happens? You know what happens to the body, but what happens to the soul? And, and on and on and on these questions go. Perhaps you've got questions, as I do, about death that we may not be able to find all the answers to. So here tonight, I want us to raise this question. What do we know about what happens after death? What do we know about that? What does the Bible say about that? And so we're going to open our text and try to answer some questions about death and what we know about what happens after death. As I mentioned at the beginning, death is not, is not a pleasant subject. It's not one of those things that you uh, tell a friend, pull up a chair, let's talk about death. This is an interesting subject. Because we don't like talking about death, particularly as we get older. We may not like that because we realize we're getting closer to that day. But this is a subject that if we analyze what the Bible says, it should give us some hope and perhaps give us something to look forward to as we think about death and also tell us to be cautious about some things with reference to death. Let's start with this. Let's start with the fact that there is life after death. If there is no life after death, then there's not much to talk about. And we can just end. If the answer to the question is, is there life after death? If a man dies, shall he live again? And if the answer to that question is no, there is no life after death, let's just close the book and forget it. I don't know of anything else to say. So the answer to the question is that there is life after death, and let's give some biblical evidence of that. Let's open our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 22. Let's go to Matthew chapter 22 and look at verse 32. And... The text says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. I want you to follow the three points on the screen. This is quite simplistic. And perhaps you've already gone through this in your mind and reached the conclusion, but I want to talk about how we got to this conclusion. The text says that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. 
And so if he's said to be the God of a certain person, they are alive because he's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. Secondly, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At the time that statement is made, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are physically dead. Their bodies are in the grave. So the conclusion is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at that time and even at this moment are living. They're alive. He is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. So if he is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, Abraham is alive Isaac is alive and Jacob is alive. Even in 2023, they're alive, but they're physically dead. So that tells me that there is life after death. Even though they're physically dead, their bodies are in the grave, their bodies are in the tomb, they are alive. But let's go to another passage that makes the same kind of point. Let's go this time to the transfiguration, this time in Matthew chapter 17 and in verse 3. This is the text where Jesus was transfigured before his disciples. The text says, And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now verse 3 said, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. So here on this occasion, the disciples see Jesus change before them. He is transfigured before them. They also see Moses and Elijah appearing. Now how does that appear and how does that happen unless Moses and Elijah are also alive? Now they're physically dead at this point. They've been dead for a long time. For hundreds of years they've been dead. But they are now alive and perhaps this context is emphasizing the deity of Christ, the, that he is the message of the new covenant, and that here we have Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets giving, um, uh, giving their homage to the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the son of God. But beside that point, we have Moses and Elijah like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive even though they are physically dead. But let's go further. Hebrews chapter 9 and in verse 27, it is appointed unto man once to die and after that, the judgment. Now, if there is no life beyond the grave, then what's happening after death? What, what is this judgment for? What is accomplished in that judgment? The fact there is a judgment to be faced beyond death tells me there is life beyond the grave. There is life after death. Now, Luke chapter 16, I'm just going to hit at this juncture in passing. We're going to read that entire context in a few moments and make several observations from Luke 16. But I just want to mention and introduce the story of the rich man and Lazarus. That the rich man died and the text talks about what took place after his death. Lazarus died and here's what was said and what he did and what the con uh, conversation he had beyond his death. So both the rich man and Lazarus, the ungodly and the godly, were living after death. They're both physically dead, but they're alive. Well, that's just a sampling of evidence. We could give more, but we've tried to answer the question, is there life after death? And the answer to the question is, yes, there's life after death. So what about death? Well, let's go to a second point. And let's talk about where the dead go. If there is life beyond death, we know what happens to the body. 
But what happens to the part of man that lives on beyond the grave? So where do the dead go? Where are the dead? Well, let's start with this, that death is a separation always. I don't know of a passage where, or a context where it is not used even outside the Bible where the term death does not mean separation. Death always means separation of something. Maybe not talking about body and the spirit, but it is some form of separation. And so when we talk about you dying, a person dying, there is a separation that is involved. Let's look at Ecclesiastes 12 and in verse 7. Then the dust shall return to earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. That just described that separation. So at death, what happens? The dust returns to the earth as it was. The body decays. And the spirit returns to God. There is a separation of the body and spirit. Let's go again. James, James chapter 2 and in verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so then faith without works is dead also. He's illustrating a point about faith and works, but he illustrates it with the body. The body without the spirit is dead. The body separated from the spirit is dead. So there is a separation that takes place in death. So here's what takes place in death. In life, your body and your spirit are joined together. And that's why you're alive and you're moving and you're functioning. You're living on this side of death. But at the moment that death comes, there is a separation. That's what death involves. Ecclesiastes 7 said, the body should return to dust as it was. So the body is placed in the grave and returns to dust. It decays. The spirit then returns to God, goes into the Hadean rim. We'll talk about it in a moment and define. But the spirit goes into the Hadean rim or returns to God, goes back to God who gave it, Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7. So now understanding that what takes place at death is there is a separation of the body and the spirit. The spirit is still alive. In fact, that is the immortal part of man, the undying part of man that lives on beyond the grave is his spirit or his soul. It returns to God who gave it. Now let's talk about the term hell as it is found in the New Testament, particularly the King James translation and the New King James in many cases. If you're reading from one of the more modern translations, you may find the word Hades quite often. But let's talk about the word that is translated hell. There are four that I want to talk about that are translated hell. They do not all refer to the same thing. Let's go in the Old Testament now. Let's go to Psalm 139 and in verse 8. Let's go to Psalm 139 and notice that verse 8. The text says, if I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell... This is the new King James I'm rendering. King James says the same thing. Behold, you are there. That word hell, it comes from this word sheol in the Hebrew. And it just simply means the unseen state. It's the same thing as Hades of the New Testament. But that's translated hell here in the new King James and in the King James translation. It doesn't mean the burning fire of hell, Gehenna. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the term hell here simply means the Hadean realm, or it is the unseen state. But let's come now to a passage or two in the New Testament. The word Hades, this is also translated hell. You may be reading from a translation that uses the word Hades, which is probably more proper. That's a transliteration. But it is from this Greek Hades, and it means the realm of the dead. It means basically the same thing that we have in the word Sheol. 
Look at Acts chapter 2. Let's get a sampling of how this word is used. In Acts chapter 2 and in verse 27, this is a quotation from Psalm 16 concerning the resurrection of Christ, that you will not leave my soul in Hades. Some translation may use the word hell, leave my soul in hell. Neither will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Look at verse 31. He foreseeing this spoke of the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in Hades, hell, I believe in the King James, nor will his flesh see corruption. He's talking about the realm of the departed spirits or the realm of the dead. It is translated by the term hell, translated by the word Hades. Now look at Luke chapter 16 and in verse, uh, verse 23. This is in the story of the rich man and Lazarus that the rich man died and in torments in Hades. He was in the Hadean realm. So Luke 16 gives us some insight and pulls back the curtain so I can look into the Hadean realm. More about that in a moment. Matthew 16 in verse 18, the Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What do you mean the gates of hell? You say, well, I think that's talking about that the forces of, of hell, the forces of the devil. No, no, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the Hadeans, the word Hades. The fact that he dies and goes into the Hadean realm, which he did, did not prevent him from establishing his kingdom. That's the point of Mark, Matthew 16 and in verse 18. Now there's another term that's used. This time, this time let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2 and in verse 4. We'll come back to this a little bit later. 2 Peter 2 and verse 4, For God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell. And you say, well, I know what that's talking about. He cast them down to the burning fires of hell. No, that's not the word. It's not Gehenna. It's this word Tartarus. It's a different word from Hades, and it's obviously not a Hebrew word. And it has reference to the abode of the wicked dead. It is part of that Hadean realm that we'll describe in a moment. But it is, the, it is the portion of the Hadean realm reserved for those that are wicked. These wicked angels were cast down into Hades, but here called Tartarus. That is the abode of the wicked dead. Now there's another term translated hell, and it's the word Gehenna. That is the burning place of hell that burns forever and forever. Look at Mark chapter 9. Turn to Mark chapter 9 and in verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life main rather than having two hands to go into hell, that's Gehenna, into the fire that shall never be quenched. That's the fire that burns forever and forever. We read about all through the New Testament. It is where the wicked after death suffer punishment. And that is Gehenna. Now tonight I'm not interested so much in Gehenna, so we're going to kind of fade that out. All three of these terms, Sheol, Hades, and Tartarus, are talking about the realm of the departed spirits, what we think of as the Hadean realm. Where do the dead go? Whether wicked or righteous, where do they go? After death. All right? With that in mind, let's talk about the realm of the dead, the Hadean realm, and what the Bible says about the Hadean realm. What does the word Hades mean? Strong says it means properly the unseen. Thus, people who are dead and the spirit goes to the unseen. We don't look at the spirit. So, well, there's the spirit. Where are we going to put it? Uh, here's where the spirit is residing. We can't see that. So, it's the realm of the unseen. Hades are the place or state of departed souls. Grave or hell, Strong says. Vines, who does a little commenting along the way as well as defining. But this is what Vines says about the word Hades. It's in the region of departed spirits of the lost. 
but including the blessed dead in periods preceding the ascension of Christ. It has been thought by some that etymologically uh, this word meant the unseen, as Strong so defined that, because it's taken from the A negative and Edo meaning to see, that is not to see. And it is the unseen realm, that's true. But he said this derivation is questionable. A more probable derivation is that it's from Hado, which means the all-receiving. Well, that makes sense. The Hadean realm receives all. All who die come into this realm. So you're wicked, you, you go to the Hadean realm. You're righteous, you go to the Hadean realm, the realm of the unseen. It never denotes the grave nor the permanent region of the lost, that is Gehenna, or heaven. In point of time it is for such an intermediate between decease and the doom of Gehenna. Now Vine is exactly right about that. You say, how do you know? Because it harmonizes with the use of the term in the New Testament. So Vine's exactly right about that. It never denotes the grave. It's not just the grave within itself. It is not the permanent region for those who are lost. It has reference to that intermediate state awaiting the judgment to come. Now let's see if we can get a better picture of that. What does the Bible say about the Hadean realm? Let's look at kind of a timeline. And here we have the point of death on the one side. And then the Hadean realm awaits before the time of the resurrection and judgment. Let's go to Luke 16, and I want you to notice with me, we've already took note in Luke chapter 16, that this is the Hadean realm. Look at verse 23. That being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. So this is the Hadean realm. Now we'll come back to this a little bit later, but I want to get ahead of myself to look at verse 26. And besides all this, between us there is a great gulf fixed. In this Hadean realm, there is a great gulf so that those from one side of the Hadean realm cannot pass to the other side of the Hadean realm. And those on that side cannot pass then to the other. There is the great gulf fixed. And so that's why we put that on our slide. Now, in the Hadean realm, there is a realm called paradise. Jesus talked about paradise. Jesus, when he died, went into paradise. I'll give you evidence of that in a moment. The thief on the cross went with Jesus into paradise. Lazarus was in that realm, also called Abraham's bosom. Let's look at some passages that may talk about that. In Luke 23, 43, Jesus said to the man on the cross, the thief on the cross, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And that wasn't talking about heaven, and I'll give you evidence in a moment, that one heaven. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. You're dying today, I'm dying today, we're going to paradise and you're going with me to paradise. Now remember, the Hadean realm is all receiving, receives all the dead. Those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. But the thief was going with Jesus to paradise, the text says. Well, let's look at Luke chapter 16 and in verse 22. So it was that the beggar died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's this realm of paradise here called Abraham's bosom. Remember in Acts chapter 2, we've already read verse 27 and verse 41, that Jesus, speaking of his resurrection, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. His body was placed in the tomb, and his spirit was in the Hadean realm, and they're joined back together again. That's a resurrection. And he, foreseeing this, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, verse 31. 
So Jesus was in paradise or he was in the Hadean realm. We've already cited Matthew 16 and in verse 18 that the gates of hell, Hades, shall not prevail against it. Then there is this region that we've already defined as referring to Tartarus. The rich man was there. Remember, he was not in the same area of Hades as was Lazarus. So he, there was this great guff between them. And the same thing is true with reference to angels that have sinned. Let's look again at these passages. Look at Luke 16 and in verse 23. And being in torments in Hades, this is the rich man. But this is not Lazarus, this is the rich man. He was in Hades, but he was in torments in Hades. That's not paradise. That's not Abraham's bosom, but it's the Hadean realm. Let's notice again another passage. We already noted 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, that these angels were cast down to Tartarus. Now we know they go to Hadean realm because all go to the Hadean realm, but there it was called Tartarus, the, the state of the wicked dead. That's not paradise, not Abraham's bosom. But that's where they went. Well, let's notice a parallel passage, as you know. The book of 2 Peter, chapter 2, and also Jude 6 seem to be quite parallel. Look at Jude, verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own role, he reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. The word Hades is not mentioned there, but that's well descriptive of Hades. And you say, how do you know? The parallel account calls that Tartarus. But they're being reserved to judgment. They haven't faced judgment yet. But they're dead and they've been cast down into everlasting chains. Let's look at Luke chapter 10. One more passage along that line. We're trying to get a flavor of what the text has to say by looking at compounding passages. Luke chapter 10 and in verse 15. And you, Capernaum, who exalted to heaven, would be brought down to Hades. And so here is a city that is being pictured those inhabitants of the city that reject the Christ are going to be cast down into Hades. Not Gehenna, but into, Ge in, into Hades. So where do the dead go? What happens to my spirit when I die? I know what happens to my body. It's placed in the grave and it's going to corrupt and it's going to, to return to dust. What happens to my spirit upon death? Well, in the case of Lazarus, he went to paradise. In the case of Jesus and the thief, they went to paradise, the Hadean realm. Those who were wicked, like the rich man and angels, they went into Tartarus, that Hadean realm. That whole area is the Hadean realm following death, long before the resurrection and judgment takes place. Now I want to demonstrate something I mentioned that I'd come back to. This Hadean realm is not heaven. When Jesus said this, today shall you be with me in paradise. So I know what he's talking about. He's talking about going to heaven and, I'm going, and, and the thief went with him to heaven. Now, Jesus didn't go to heaven at that point. He did later. He ascended to heaven. Jesus was in paradise. Let's establish that again. Acts chapter 2, verse 21, his soul was not left in Hades. So Jesus was in Hades or paradise. Today shall thou be with me in paradise. Luke chapter 23, 43. So he was in Hades. He was in the paradise portion of Hades. Those texts tell me that. But at that point, he had not yet ascended to heaven. Turn with me to John chapter 20. Following his resurrection, that is, he's been dead. His body has been in the Hadean realm. John chapter 20 and verse 17, he said, For I have not yet ascended to my Father. He's going to, but not at this point. Following his resurrection, he said, I have not yet ascended to my Father. His Father is in heaven. I've not yet ascended to my Father. But he had been in Hades. He'd been in paradise. So that shows me a distinction between this Hadean realm and eternal heaven or eternal hell. There's a difference. There is a distinction in those. 
So Jesus said, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. He's not saying you're going to heaven with me. Not today you're not. You're going to the paradise, the Hadean realm with me. But you're going to be in the paradise portion of that. So what then happens? Well, at the point of death, your body goes into the Hadean realm. Whether you're righteous or wicked depends on whether you're going to paradise, Abraham's bosom, or to Taurus. Then there is the resurrection of the dead at the end of time, Acts chapter 20, 2 Corinthians 5. And then there is the judgment, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. And those who are righteous are ushered into heaven, and those who are wicked are ushered into hell. It's at that point where there is the judgment that takes place. Is there some form of judgment prior to that? Perhaps so. There was because the angels being cast down to hell, to Hades, to Taurus, there had to be some form of judgment. So the judgment we'll talk about perhaps in another lesson is the pronouncement that God gives of their eternal destiny. More about that in another study. Now, I'm more interested now, back to our question. I've established the fact that there is life after death. And we've answered the question, where, where do the dead go? We know that. We know what the Bible teaches about that. I'm interested now about awareness and knowledge after death. How many times has someone died and, and someone said, well, they don't know anything now. They don't know a thing going on. Oh, yeah, they know. And the Bible reveals that they know some things that are going on. Not only with them, but with reference to others. So if you don't already have a Bible out, let's spend some time in Luke chapter 16. Let's go to Luke 16, beginning at verse 19, and we'll read through verse 31. This is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And we're going to build several points around this story. And so we'll make references to some verses. But let's read these verses together. They're not going to be on the screen before you. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who laid at his gate. Desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you receive good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great guff fixed, so that those who would pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they come into this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now let's raise a question. Is this a real story or only a parable? Our materialist friends, by materialist, I'm not talking about they're given to materialism, those who hold to the doctrine of, of materialistic concept. That is, that man has no soul that lives beyond the grave. Jehovah's Witnesses fit that bill. That they are, we describe them as being materialists. There is no soul living beyond, there is no life after death. 
And they argue that Luke 16 is merely a parable, meaning, therefore, this is not a true story. This is not a true story, nor could the events happen in the story. It's merely a parable, they tell us. So is this a true story? Is it a parable? My question, first of all, is what difference does it make? Let's just grant for argument's sake that it is a parable. It is not called a parable, by the way. Look through Luke 16 and notice there are a number of occasions where Jesus would speak a parable unto them, or he spoke the parable of, but this is never called a parable. Never called a parable in this text. But let's say it is a parable. Still teaches the same thing, doesn't it? Is there anything that's, un is it teaching something untrue? But we can teach you untruth in a parable, but it couldn't be a true story? Again, it's never called a parable. Now, there's some of the elements of the story that are obviously are real characters and real beings. For example, Abraham was a real character. Verse 23. So were Moses and the prophets. That's not the person Moses and the personal prophets, but it's the idea of the revelation of Moses and the prophets, the law. Let them read them. Let them read the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets was something real. It was not something imagined. So if those were real, why not all the rest? If Abraham was real, why not Lazarus being real? And why not the rich man being real and the great guff being real? If not, why not? Again, it's never called a parable. What I want you to see in Luke chapter 16 is there is awareness and knowledge after death. There is awareness and knowledge after death. Let's go back through our text. And I want to pay attention to what was known and what they were aware of after death. Now they're dead, both the rich man and Lazarus. But I want you to notice this at verse 23. That being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off. He knows where he is. And he saw Abraham. Well, that's interesting to me. Maybe we're fearful of death and I, I just don't know what's going to happen when I die. No, I don't understand all that's going to happen. But I know this, if this story be true, and I have every reason to believe it is true. If it's not true, then nothing else in the Bible is true, by the way. If this story is true, that the moment I die, I'm going to know where I am. And I'm going to see others. Because he did. Let's go further. Notice at verse 24, he recognized Abraham and talked to Abraham. That's interesting. You ever thought about you would love the opportunity to talk to Abraham? Other great Bible characters? He saw Abraham and talked to Abraham. There was awareness and knowledge after death. Look at verse 25. Abraham responded to him. He not only spoke to Abraham, Abraham spoke to him. You might underline this word, remembered, verse 25. And the text says, son, remember in your lifetime. What does he remember? He was able to remember, even though he's dead physically. There's a part of him living on. He can remember the, his life back on earth. Remember? What did he say to remember? That in your lifetime you received uh, good things. He can remember his life on earth, even though he's not there anymore. He can remember what he had while on earth. He can remember good versus evil. You receive good things, and here was evil things. He mentions that in verse 25. Furthermore, he can remember specific people. He can remember who Abraham was. He can also remember he has five brothers 
that are not dead. He remembers exactly those brothers. So there's memory after death. Let's go further. Look at verse 27 and 28. He's aware that he has family still living. I beg you to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may testify to them. He's not only aware of the fact that he has family still living, he's aware of their spiritual condition. They're not ready to die. Send them back lest they come into this place of torment. I wasn't ready. They're not ready. Send them back because they need to get ready. Send somebody to talk to them. Please. Furthermore, verse 30, he knows he's dead. No father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, we're dead. He knows he's dead. He knows I am no longer living among those on earth, but I'm still alive. That's amazing to look at that text to me and see what is known beyond death. I can know what I used to be. I know what I had. I can know good and I can know evil. I can know family. I can know their spiritual condition. I can recognize Abraham. I can know those things beyond death. Look at verse 31. He was able to be reasoned with. Verse 31, he said, but if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. You see, even after death, there could be some reasoning. Abraham is reasoning with him. Now, we don't need to send someone from the dead, and, and that's not going to work. They wouldn't listen anyway. Because if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen to, to anyone who rose from the dead. There's reasoning going on beyond death. That's also amazing. Let's close by talking about this last point. I want us to see that we can't know etern the eternal destiny of all. We can know some things about eternity, but we can't know eternal destiny of all. We'll see what I mean by that as we go further. Let's talk about what we can know. I can know that I have eternal life, and you can know that. In fact, in 1 John 5, 13, I'll just make a brief passing reference to that, simply because we've come through that in our studies on Sunday morning. John said, I'm writing unto you that you may know you have eternal life. And so I can know, based on the revelation of God and how I've lived, am I living in harmony with that? I can know I have the hope of eternal life. So I can know that I have eternal life. I can know that. Secondly, I can have hope for others that are faithful. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here's a passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter, uh, chapter 4, beginning at verse uh, 13. Concerning those who had questions about those who were dead, who've gone on, are they at a disadvantage somehow? And yet this text says that there is hope. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest they who sorrow as others who have no hope. Don't worry about those who have fallen asleep, those who died, who are Christians. Don't worry about that. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the clouds with, to meet the Lord in the air and thus will always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. You see, here are those that are dead in Christ. Is there any hope? I can have hope for them. I can know something of their eternal destiny. At least based on my knowledge of their life, I can believe they have the hope of eternal life. Let's go further. I can also know this. I can know those that do not obey the gospel will be lost. 
Let's turn to 2 Thessalonians. You should know this passage well. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 7, the text says, To you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that know not God, and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. Those who do not obey the gospel will be punished with everlasting destruction. Revelation 21 in verse 8 says, All liars will have their part in that lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Galatians 5 talks about the works of the flesh and those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So I can know that those who do not submit to the will of God will be lost. So here's somebody who's a drunkard and they die in a state of drunkenness. I can be pretty assured that they're not going to heaven. You say, how do you know that? Because Galatians 5 tells me that. Here's someone who is a liar, never repented of their lying. They're going to go to hell. How do you know? Because the text tells me that. Here's one who never obeyed the gospel. I can know they're lost. I can know they're lost because the text tells me so. God's word is plain. And yet, listen to this carefully. We often say concerning someone who's died, who didn't obey the gospel, well, they're in a better place now. You ever hear that? You see, my loved one died, but they're in a better place now, though. they've, They've gone through a lot in this life, but they're in a better place now. Really? You think the brothers of the rich man in Luke 16 thinks he's in a better place if they understood the revelation of God? You think they're saying, well, he's in a better place. I know he's in torments in Hades, and I know he's crying out for someone to even bring a, 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 just dip their finger in water and cool his tongue, but he's in a better, no, he's not in a better place. He's not. We know the word of God is plain, and yet we often say concerning those that live ungodly, rest in peace. Maybe it's some movie star, and we post something on Facebook, and we say, R.I.P., rest in peace. Really? Would you say that concerning the rich man? May he rest in peace. He ain't resting in peace. He's in torments. He's in torments. And here's somebody who didn't obey the gospel. Here's somebody who's a drunkard. Here's somebody who's a liar. Here's a fornicator. Here's an adulterer. And they die in that condition. It is no resting in peace. If I understand what happens beyond the grave, there is no resting in peace. But let's consider this. That we can't know all that God knows. And what do I mean by that? You see, God knows the secrets of man. I can know what I I can see about someone's life. They seem to be faithful. Or I didn't know of their making correction in their life, to my knowledge. But the Romans 2 and verse 16 said, God knows even the secrets of men. I don't know that. You don't know that either. And so God knows that. And furthermore, God knows all that we've done. In the day of judgment, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 says he's going to bring all of our deeds into account. I don't know everything you've done. You don't know everything I've done. You don't know everything good or bad about other people. So I don't know what God's bringing into judgment. I don't know that. I know he's bringing all deeds, but I don't know what all that includes. And because that is true, let me close with a warning for us to be careful. What do I mean by being careful? When someone passes, particularly someone maybe that didn't obey the gospel or we're we're not sure about them ever making their life right, just be careful about making statements, well, I know they're in heaven. Now, if every evidence is they're faithful, we can have assurance, 1 Thessalonians 4, 
Or someone may say concerning their loved one that if anyone will go to heaven, he or she will because they were such a good person. If anyone went to heaven, I know they went. If they didn't make it, no one will. Or someone says, my loved one's in a better place now, as we've already mentioned, or saying rest in peace when maybe they never even resemble being a Christian. May they rest in peace. We need to be careful, as one writer said, of whittling on God's end of the stick. We don't need to be whittling on God's end of the stick. I don't want to, I have enough whittling on my end without whittling on his end. And so we need to be careful how we word things and how we react. What have we seen? Well, we tried to answer the question, what do we know about what happens after death? And we see there is life after death. We see where the dead go. We see there is awareness and knowledge after death. But we can't know the eternal destiny of all, but I can know that I can have the hope of eternal life. Hopefully that clarifies some things for us. And maybe that gives us a little better perspective from the standpoint, what if I were to die? What's it going to be like? That I'm going to be aware. I'm going to know some things. I'm going to be talking. I'm going to be conversing. I'm going to be well aware of what, what I had in the past and what I'm, where I am now and that I'm dead and here's where I am. I'm going to be well aware of that if Luke 16 means anything to us. There may be one or more present this evening who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith? and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?